We're going to read the scriptures, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining with all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this is the word of God. You may have heard of a ministry called Open Doors. It's a ministry that serves the persecuted church throughout the world. They report that in North Korea, uh, if the government discovers that you are a Christian, you and your family are either taken to a labour camp or killed. In Somalia, uh, if you are suspected of being a Christian convert, your life will be closely monitored. Church life is simply not possible. So the few believers that are there have to meet and gather in secret. There are several countries in the Middle East where it is illegal to convert from being a Muslim to becoming a Christian. Christians are at great risk of being killed, both by their families, uh, their clans or their tribes. What does the suffering and persecuted church need most this time? It is predicted within 15 years, China will become the world's most Christian nation. Uh, Darrell Island, who's a Boston University School of Theology professor, he estimates that the Christian community has grown from 1 million to 100 million. What does the growing church need most in times of great revival? Well, unlike China, the church in the West, including Australia, is in decline. Uh, not only numerically, but theologically and morally. I think it's fair to say that worldliness, pride and unbelief 
has so infected the Western church to such an extent that many have become utterly blind to the reality of their spiritual indifference, including some of the most gifted and recognised Christian leaders. What does the declining church in the West need most at this time? Well, according to Revelation, at least the revelation that the Lord gave to the Apostle John, the persecuted church, the growing church, and a church in decline need one and the same thing. An ever-deepening vision of the exalted and glorified Christ. It is not for nothing that after John is given the command to write down what he sees, that the very first vision that God reveals to him is a vision of the exalted Christ. He was not given the vision, let's say, of the seven bowls of wrath or a vision of a new Jerusalem coming down to meet the new heavens, or he wasn't even given, in the first instance, a vision of Christ's second return. He was given an awesome and utterly extraordinary vision of a glorified Son of God. What this tells us is that the seven churches whom Jesus are about to write to individually needs this vision of the exalted Christ as of first importance. Now, of course, there's no doubt the church needs a vision of the glory of the new heavens and earth, don't we? Uh, We need a vision of God's Christ's second coming, indeed his coming judgment. But what they, and indeed every church in every generation needs, whether persecuted, growing or in decline, what we need as of first importance is a vision of a glorified and exalted Christ. The reason being is that God's saving work is not only centred in Jesus, but it's impossible outside of him. In your salvation, God does not work outside of his precious and holy son. There is a direct There is a a direct connection between your growth in the knowledge of Christ and your growth in your faith in Christ. Little knowledge of Jesus will result in little faith in Jesus. And little faith in Jesus will bear little fruit. Uh, My sisters and brothers, I urge you this morning, consider very carefully your need to come to know more deeply, not simply Christ, but the glory and the majesty of the exalted, risen and ascended Lord Jesus. Uh, Not simply what Christ has done in the past through his finished work on the cross, although that is of the most utmost importance, but the, the wonder and the power of his continuing ministry in heaven. See, Christ's work has been finished, and praise God for that. But it doesn't mean that Christ is not ministering. See, according to the scriptures, Christ has a heavenly ministry. And this is something that we see wonderfully throughout the book of Revelations. It's an extraordinary vision of Christ's continuing heavenly ministry. In verse 9, we read that the Apostle John, who himself is suffering under persecution, is in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this may mean he's simply praying, but I think more likely it's 
It's like uh, what we read in Ezekiel. He's been transported into a world of prophetic vision, just like Ezekiel was. And in this spiritual state, we hear that he hears a voice like a trumpet. The significance of a voice being loud is that what John is hearing can't be misinterpreted. This can't be misinterpreted as something that is in John's imagination or that he's misheard something. It is a loud voice. It's like a trumpet. There's no mishearing this. And it takes us back to Exodus 19 when Moses speaks to God at Mount Sinai. See, a trumpet blast preceded God's revelation to Moses. Here, in Revelation chapter 1, we read once again, the voice of a trumpet precedes God's revelation to us, to his people. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. We are told that John sees the Lord Jesus Christ in this glorified state, walking among seven lampstands. You would have noticed in verse 20, Jesus tells John that the lampstands are symbolic for the seven churches that Jesus is about to write to. Now, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. Uh, The number seven, which, by the way, is actually mentioned 36 times, it's used to symbolise completeness or wholeness. Let let me give you an example. In chapter 16, the seven bowls of God's wrath symbolises his final and complete judgement upon the world. So so in verse 20, the, the seven churches not only refers to the seven churches in John's time, but to the complete of a whole church throughout all time, including, quite incredibly, us here this morning. Which means that this vision of Christ is being given as of first importance, not only to the church in John's time, but to us here, right now. The significance of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, I think, is utterly breathtaking. Because what we're being told is that while the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father that through Christ is mediated all the power of the entire universe. He's not distanced from his church. He's not distant from you or me. In fact, he's walking amongst us. Just because the Lord Jesus is exalted in glory does not mean he's deserted you. On the contrary, he's dwelling amongst us, which means he knows what's going on in his church. He knows when the church being persecuted needs comforting. He knows when the the, the church uh, is growing and needs humility. He knows that when the church is in decline or disobedient, it needs disciplining or rebuking because he walks amongst us. I think this part of a vision alone ought to have a profound effect upon how you view Christ's care and love for his beloved church. I think one of our temptations we face, both corporately and individually, is we make the mistake of of judging God by our circumstances, by how we feel rather than by his word. So, for example, when people are dying for their faith or when the church is being squeezed by the government of the day, 
we can be tempted to judge God not by his word, what he's said, but by what we're feeling. And at that point, we can doubt his love, care and power. By the way, this is exactly what happened to the people in the time of Moses. Do you remember they were redeemed from Egypt? God gave them manna from heaven. But as soon as there was no water to drink, instead of believing God would keep his word to care for them, they judged him as an uncaring God who has deserted them. In Exodus 17, they actually scoff. They say, is the Lord among us or not? Here's the answer. You bet he is. More than this, he walks amongst us. But what this also means is that he knows what is going on in his church. We can hide things from one another, but we can't hide anything from the one whose eyes blaze like fire. Don't hear me wrong here, please. Christ is not like a cranky school teacher in exam time, wandering around the room, waiting and watching with suspicion. Not, not at all. In fact, on the contrary, John here is not only giving us a vision of a Lord Jesus in the midst of us, but one who is ministering in heaven on your behalf. In verse 13, we read that the exalted Christ is like the Son of Man who is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. At this point in the book of Revelation, we come to something that is very common. There's this direct allusion to the Old Testament, especially in the image. That's why I asked uh, Exodus 28 to be read, because here the direct allusion to the long robe and the sash are the garments of the Old Testament priests. Uh, in Exodus 28 that we read, Moses commanded to dress Aaron, the high priest, in a robe and a sash. And now it's not for nothing that we read that the glorified and exalted Christ is wearing them both. Why? The significance of this um, is very hard for me to put into words. The best I can do is, for a brief moment, I want to take you back to the book of Hebrews because in chapter 7 to 10, it raises a vision of Christ's eternal priesthood. In Hebrews 7, the writer tells us that the Lord Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is, like Melchizedek, Christ has no beginning and end. So, unlike the Old Testament priests, the Lord Jesus lives forever in the power of an indestructible life. And then in Hebrews, chapters 8 and 9, we are told that our eternal high priest is ministering in heaven on our behalf. In fact, we read that Christ Jesus lives to intercede for us. What is he doing? He's making real for you all that he's achieved through his work upon the cross. In particular, he is mediating into your life the fulfilment of the the new covenant promises. The promise that God made to make your heart tender so that you'll love God and not sin. The promise that he'll write his law on your heart and mind so you will now start to think of righteousness and holiness rather than evil and ungodliness. The promise that he would remove from the presence of our Father our sin so that our evil will not simply be forgiven by God, but remembered no more. 
and he's mediating into your life the magnificent promise that God's presence will dwell with you and you will dwell with him. That's the role of our great high priest. Now, how is it possible for the Lord Jesus to minister before the Father on our behalf, mediating and making real for us the truth of those promises? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, Christ willingly shed his lifeblood. And through the power of his shed blood and sacrifice, he, in the words of Hebrews, has made holy forever those whom he is making holy. In other words, not only through Christ's finished work have you been wonderfully justified, but in heaven the Lord God, Jesus Christ, in his exalted state, is sanctifying you through and through through the power of his blood. Through his willing obedience and the shedding of his blood, the Lord Jesus, as your great high priest, is truly qualified to sanctify and save you. The priests in Moses' day were no way qualified or capable of ministering or mediating such blessings into our lives. But Christ Jesus is. He is a priest forever. He who lives in the power of an everlasting life, he who gave up his life blood on the cross and tore down that curtain forever that separated you from God the Father, the one who rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, what is he doing in heaven? He's your great high priest, according to Revelation. He who lives in the power of an indestructible life is interceding forever before you, between you and the Father. He is making your heart tender. He is renewing your mind. He is removing your sins and he is dwelling within you. My sisters and brothers this morning, it is this vision of the exalted Christ that we need to know and understand ever more fully because such a vision cannot help but humble us. It exposes our need to live every day resting in Christ, abiding in Christ, pouring our hearts out to Christ, calling upon Jesus as our great high priest. This vision of Jesus ought to move us to look to him and him alone to fulfil the promises of purity, holiness and fellowship with God. One of the prayers I pray each week in my life goes like this. Lord Jesus, you are my great high priest. All praise to you. I thank you for everything you are and everything you have done. Lord Jesus, today, would you make real for me all that you achieved through your life, death and resurrection, fulfilling me that great promise to reflect the likeness and the glory of our Father more fully, fully, holy Lord. Why do I pray that prayer? Because according to Revelation, I have a great high priest in heaven who lives to intercede for me on my behalf through his love and power. This vision that John has revealed to us today not only reveals to us Christ dwelling uh, 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 amongst us and, and ministering in heaven on our behalf, 
but it also reveals the splendour of Christ's infinite glory. I'll go through these verses a little bit more quicker, but verses 14 and 15, we see Christ with white hair like snow, eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze, and the voice of a roar of many waters. It's an awesome vision. Now, the reason why John says it was like his eyes were a flame of fire and so forth is that he's seen a vision of something that he has no point of reference to attach to, right? What we need to remember is that Jesus is revealing to John heavenly realities. How do you you speak of things in heaven that you have no comparison on earth? It's like trying to explain the colour red to somebody who's colourblind. See, a person who's colourblind has no point of reference to understand colour. So when John sees these things of heaven, he has no earthly point of reference, so he has to say, it's like this. It's like this. The white hair tells us that here is the Ancient of Days. In the ancient Near East, white hair is a sign of wisdom and many years of life. And we're being told here that the exalted Lord Jesus is the eternal God who holds all wisdom. Such a vision is reflecting what we read about God in the book of Daniel, and and purposely so, because Jesus is being spoken in terms here that are reserved for God alone. That his eyes are blazing like fire tells us he may be the ancient of days, but there's nothing wrong with his eyesight. He sees all things with sharpness and perception. His feet are like burnished bronze. That is the strongest substance of that time. It's strength and power. His voice, like the roar of rushing waters, is telling us that his power is inescapable. Uh, in Launceston, we have a lovely gorge. And when that gorge is in flood, the roar of that water is incredible. Who can tell the roaring and wash rushing waters to be quiet? So too it's with Christ. See, such a vision of Christ to the persecuted church is great comfort, isn't it? Because while the persecuted church may well be oppressed for a time, in the end, they are under under the care of the almighty God. In Christ Jesus, our sisters and brothers in North Korea, Somalia and the Middle East and everywhere else in the world with their suffering, with their life for the sake of Christ, they are seemingly in a position of weakness. But according to what we read here, they will prevail. How can they not? Look who's on their side. On the other hand, the church that is disobedient and loveless and unbelieving, tolerating evil, the very things that Christ will raise up in the following uh, chapters of Revelation, such a vision of God ought to move the church to wake up, to come to the senses. This is the point of the image of a double-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. The double-edged sword is the Scriptures. And, and, and most often in the, in the Scriptures, the double-edged sword represents that God is judging his, word, his, his people by his word. Jesus will measure our lives by his word. In chapter 2 of Revelation, the church of Pergamon, He calls them to repent or will come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. That's the imagery. 
We are also told that in his right hand are his seven stars, which according to verse 20 are the angels of the seven churches. This is something we don't quite understand, and rightly so. There is a spiritual reality we do not see. It is very real. There is an evil and a darkness that is far deeper than any of us understand. But at the same time, there are thousands upon thousands of angels, God's ministering servants, sent to help God's people in their times of need. It's a comforting vision in the midst of darkness. And lastly, let me finish. We see Jesus being described as having a face as bright as the shining sun in full strength. What this is telling us is that you cannot domesticate God. See, you cannot look into the sun because it's too bright. No one can look into Jesus and plumb all his deaths and come away saying, I've worked Jesus out. My sisters and brothers, here before us is a most sublime and glorious vision, not simply of Christ Jesus, but of the exalted and glorified, risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is amongst us. If today you are suffering a broken heart, if today you are suffering a broken body, and if today you are suffering a broken mind, come and meditate on this glorious vision of Christ. He knows what you're going through. He's with you. He sees. But more than this, he cares so much for you. He is constantly interceding before the Father on your behalf. He will lead you through your brokenness. If today you are struggling with sin, you are carrying the awful guilt of things that have gone wrong in the past, if you feel overwhelmed by shame and guilt, come and meditate on this vision of Christ. Do you remember that in the Old Testament the sacrifices were given by the Old Testament people, to remind them of their sin. The once-for-all sacrifice that Christ had made was made so that God would remember sins no more. Isn't that wonderful? As far as from the east is from the west, so far he has removed your transgressions from you. If you are struggling with guilt and shame and the struggle of sin, keep resting your faith in Christ Jesus. Trust him to be your great high priest who puts away your sin from the presence of a father, no longer there, and gives you a new heart that is made tender to obey God. And if today you struggle with the state of a church, the corruption of institutions and the ever-increasing godlessness of governments then meditate on this vision of Christ. He will prevail, and so will all those who follow him. Do not fear, do not doubt. Rest and abide in the one who is almighty to save and the one who will one day make all things new. Let me lead you in prayer. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, today that you would give out to us such a gift of a vision of your Son. All praise and glory to you. Lord Jesus, we proclaim, we confess, we declare that you are the Son of God and the Son of Man. You are our great High Priest and we thank you for your continuing ministry in heaven. Lord Jesus, would you in your mercy, grace and power continue to make real for us all that you achieve through your life, death and resurrection. Lord Jesus, please continue to make our hearts tender that we'll love and obey the Father like you. Lord Jesus, would you continue in your mercy and grace and through the, the, the lifeblood you have given, given up, wash away our sins that they be remembered no more. And Lord Jesus, would you continue in your mercy to give to us the gift of a presence of a Father in our lives dwelling within us, that he will be our God and we will be his people in joy, in peace, in love. Father, we ask these things not for our glory, but that when you look to us here as a gathered congregation, the angels and the heavenly powers will cry out, how wise and how good is the living God. May we be for your glory, and we ask this in your name. Amen.